Good morning to you. It's good to hear um, all the different prayer requests. I appreciate prayers for our family, prayers for our ministry, prayers for those that are ill uh, in our congregation. This is a time when we can come together and remember how God has brought us into one congregation. As you know, to help us do that, I kind of keep you up to date with our activities. Uh, in the upper left, this is Jay and Shabo's Waystrong group. They're going throughout the city, um, celebrating Chinese culture, hopefully proclaiming Christ as well. And next to that is Tim and Judy Shine uh, doing ministry outreach, Chinese New Year's. Grace, who cooks a lot of our lunches here at PCC, um, said to cook 600 dumplings for them. So very thankful she could help them. And then down below, you might not recognize that, but that's at PCC in our library. Um, the homeschool group, uh, Classical Conversations, met in our library uh, to do a science fair. If you look real closely, you'll see Johannan's science project there. He was burning different things and see how many calories, calories being built, uh, burned out, uh, out of them. And I don't know if he won a prize or not, but he presented there. And then uh, pictures of our cell group. So the top row here is our cell group leaders meeting where Pastor Hans and Irene hosted the cell group leaders and uh, had a dinner for them and to kind of talk to everything's happening in our, our cell groups. And down below is our church leaders. That happened a few weeks ago here at PCC as we introduced the council to you. Those are the leaders here at PCC. And our bonus picture here is this young man. Uh, you might recognize Aaron. Aaron was um, part of our RISE group, and this is his new wife, Anisha. So they got married January, is that right? December, January? January. January, in January they got married. So you get a bonus picture there. Okay, and here's where we were the last couple of weeks. So ACF, we missed you a couple of weeks ago as uh, the worship team. Uh, the picture on the upper right is Pastor Simon's wife, Tiffany, who spoke to us. Uh, really a very personal story of how they uh, did embryo adoption. I think we all learned a lot about embryo adoption. Our games being played there. Thank you for us uh, playing games together. And our bonus picture here. Uh, Wei Shan, I don't know if you're watching from Hong Kong, but that is your son, Owen, in the snow, in shorts, making a um, snowman and a decapitated snowman down below. All right, and then more pictures of the retreat. Uh, this is all the groups. This is the freshmen, sophomore, junior, seniors, alumni, uh, RISE, and YF. So all these different groups came together uh, to be part of our, our uh, retreat. Our bonus picture here is Justin. Justin, I love seeing Justin happy. Here's Justin very happy <laughs> celebrating something at the retreat. And our last picture of the retreat, this is all of us all together. And um, it's special because that retreat, Hannah and Nathan aren't here this morning. They're in California. But they made a very special announcement. I won't spoil it. They shared very special news with us. I'll wait for them to come back, and they can share that special news uh, with you. Okay, so if you have your Bibles, we're going to get back to Genesis 37, Genesis 37. So in your bulletins, it says about providence shaping Joseph. And what we're really saying here, it's God's providence. It's God shaping Joseph. And God's providence shapes Joseph in a way that we see um, throughout Scripture. The deliverer is rejected and he suffers. This is a common theme in Scripture. This is like a classical story of God using someone who suffers, someone who is stricken down, who is weakened, and then he's used by God to be the Messiah. And then we're going to see how providence advances his plan of redemption. So all that we see unfolding us from 37 to the end of Genesis chapter 50 is a great account of how God's plan of redemption unfolds in front of us. So we're going to see all that unfold. 
Okay, so uh, what we read this morning, let's go to verse one. Uh, actually, let me pray before we go into verse one. Let's pray together. Lord, we've had this account many times told to us from when we were very little. We've heard this story of Joseph's time and time again, about the pain and the struggle and how your providence orders all things. And as we look at your providence, may we see it's for your glory and our gain. Pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay, so again, if you go to verse 1, uh, Joseph lived in the land of his father's sojournings in the land of Canaan. And it starts out here, there's a very different uh, theme here than chapter 36. What Pastor Hans brought to us last week was about Esau. And Esau, as you remember, lived down in the southern part there. You see Mount Seir. Esau chose to live outside of Canaan. Esau chose to marry Canaanite wives. Esau chose not to be in the land of promise. And in great contrast to that, in, verse, in chapter 37, we see now Jacob chose to live in the land of Abraham, chose to live in the land of Isaac, in the land of the covenant. God said, this is your land. And um, Jacob wisely chooses not to follow Esau down to Edom, but to stay in the land of his fathers. So it sets a whole different tone than verse, uh, chapter 36 that we learned last week. And if you go on here in verse one, it says, these are the generations of Jacob. Now, <clears throat> we see here generations. It also could be, if you have an NIV Bible, it'd probably say this is the account of Jacob. If you have an NAS Bible, it probably says this is the record of Jacob. And it's interesting here because the Hebrew word here, sorry for my pronunciation, teledah, teledah, teledah means it's the book of Jacob. This is all about Jacob. This is about the generations of Jacob. This is about the history of Jacob, the genealogy of Jacob. Another way to say it, it's interesting, from 37 to 50, you're going to see Jacob's names transformed back. Sometimes you'll see him called Jacob. Sometimes you'll hear him called Israel. And if you look carefully, there's reasons why each time it's recorded, sometimes Jacob, sometimes Israel. But it's really this book that comes and unfolds in front of us. And again, if you're a good student of what we've been going through Genesis, you remember that this is said in Genesis 5, when it says, this is the book of Adam. And then maybe around 11, it says, this is the book of Noah. And a little bit later, it says, this is the book of Abraham. And it said, this is the book of Isaac. This is the book of Ishmael. And last time, it said, this was the book of Esau in 36. God is bringing us through these genealogies, through these accounts, through this history of them, through the history of Israel. And again, if you're a really good student, you'll realize that this history continues throughout Israel into the New Covenant, all the way into the New Testament. And it goes all the way to Matthew 1, where it says here again, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And it gives on 14 generations. Remember we studied this in our cell groups, 14 generations from, um, I'm sorry, he starts here um, at David, son of Abraham, and he keeps going, going down until he gets all the way to this part. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who's called Christ. So we go to the New Testament, and now the book continues. It goes from the book of Jacob all the way to the book of Christ. And, and those who know what God is doing here, that there's a continuity between the old and the new. God's story continues through um, Jacob through Joseph all the way to Christ. And it's interesting as things don't happen by accident in scripture that Jacob, 
Joseph, the husband of Mary, the father of Christ, the earthly father of Christ, Jacob and Joseph. Isn't that interesting? That, that It's a different Jacob and Joseph in the New Testament, but it's what we're studying today, Jacob and Joseph. So you get, a, you get an idea of how God weaves all the scripture together, that there's no breaks in these stories and accounts don't have relevance to each other. God is always weaving this together. God's providence is shown in his word that all of it connects together. Okay, so that was verse one. Let's keep going on here to verse two. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers, and Joseph brought a bad report of them to his father. So you might remember Joseph. You guys remember what number Joseph is? He's not number one. He's not number two. He's number 11. That's correct. He's number 11. And you think, wow, Joseph is the one that God's going to use. Joseph is not number one. He's not the natural choice. Again, he's the one that's going to go through all the rejection and the suffering and all the wickedness and all the malice toward him. But God's plan is to use number 11. And we think about that. Does that happen before in Scripture? Is there a time that God doesn't use the number one? You think about this. You think Ishmael is the number one of Abraham. He's the firstborn. That could have been the one that God used, but that's not the child of promise. That's not the one that God said, you know, this covenant I'm going to have with you, and you and Sarah in your old barren age, you're going to have, Ishmael was not it. And then we think about Esau. Esau's number one. He's the strong one. He's the one I think the world would have chosen. He's the hunter. He can go out and get the game. But no, I don't choose Esau. Esau, matter of fact, I hate. I love Jacob. I don't, I hate Esau. So God chose Jacob over Esau. And then Reuben is number one of, you guys remember of, who, who's his mom? Leah, right, Leah. So Reuben should have been the number one, and he is number one physically, but he's not the one that God chose. I choose number 11. I choose Joseph. I choose to work with number 11. So God's plan of providence is not man's choice of providence. God chooses who he chooses. I love whom I love. I have mercy on whom I mercy, and God chooses Joseph. Now, if you go on this verse, you see the second half of the verse says, and Joseph brought a bad report about them to his father. So Joseph is out pasturing the flock with all his brothers. And you guys kind of know his brothers. At this point, you kind of understand what his brothers are like. Do you guys remember what his brothers are like? Reuben slept with Jacob's concubine. He humiliated his father, the concubine, kind of in public, kind of um, to ruin his father's reputation. Simeon and Levi, do you remember what they just did a few chapters ago? They wipe out Shechem. They take uh, what is not theirs. And I think the other brothers as well participate in the plundering of that city, you know, really taking everything that doesn't belong to them. So all these brothers have very bad um, history. And there's some integrity and some honesty for Joseph to bring back a bad report about them. I mean, these are not nice brothers. He could have just said, oh, dad, everything's fine. No problem. Everything's great out there. But he had the honesty and integrity to bring back a bad report about murderers and thieves and adulterers. He says, dad, they're not doing what they're supposed to be doing. And you see a seed of fortitude being um, planted in Joseph's life. Now, he's got a long way to grow. He has a lot of immaturity in his life, but he has right now the ability to bring a bad report about his brothers, even though he knows. I think he's wise enough to know that this is not a good thing, or not a wise thing to do in an earthly way. But he, he does it. 
Okay, let's keep going on. Number three. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his sons because he was a son of his old age and he made him a robe of many colors. So robe here, um, Kenneth, followed by Passim. It's interesting that this robe says it comes down to his wrists, it comes down to his ankles. This is not a good robe to be pasturing in. This is not a good robe for field work. Matter of fact, this robe would signify that he's no longer to be out in the field with his brothers pasturing, but he's now being elevated to their manager. Like this 17-year-old guy, number 11, is now our manager. He's our boss. He's the one like looking over us. Maybe because of the report that he gave to his father, maybe because he obviously um, Jacob loved him, more than any others, but he receives a position of power. He receives something that his brothers don't get. He is being elevated here in a, in a place that um, is above his brothers. So I did a little research on UPMC. I, I found the colors that you wear at UPMC, you guys that work in a hospital. Uh, we know that um, green scrubs mean you're in rehab. Black scrubs mean you're a food server. Turquoise means He's a, he's a transporter, right? Ben would know that, right? You're turquoise, right? Okay, that's his old job. Uh, maroon means RN, you're an RN. Um, blue, you're a physician's assistant or a nurse practitioner. White means you're a, you're the doc, right? You're, you're the attending, you're, you're top of the heap in some ways. Those colors signify something. Those colors signify your rank in a hospital. So you have different levels depending on your color of scrub. Everybody knows what color you're wearing, and like, okay, we know where to assign you just by looking at your colors. When I looked at Joseph colors, they knew that. This is not something you could buy Amazon. You just can't get this. This is very special. I mean, it's something that he sought out. It's very difficult to find this in this time of the world, yet he gives it to his son, the 17-year-old, and almost the son that he loves. And you're starting to think, about, oh, I remember this. It sounds like Abraham in some ways. Okay, so in verse 4 he says, but when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, this jacket signifies something different. What? They hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. So I think Jacob is not the wisest father. Jacob's not helping the situation here. You remember what he first did between Rachel and Leah, right? I love Rachel. I mean, it's so clear he loved Rachel. Leah, not so much. You know what? When we go face some danger, who gets to go first? We'll put Leah and the children out first. You guys go first. And then Rachel and then myself. So he had already shown differential treatment to his family already. There's already strife. There's already brokenness already. So to make matters worse, let me give the 17-year-old, number 11, this jacket to distinguish him even further. So he's making a bad situation even worse. The tension in his family gets much worse. The dysfunction in his family is much more magnified by his actions. Jacob does something I feel foolish at this point. And I've heard this before because I've talked to some of the Chinese families in the Chinese congregation, and as I talked to them, it's interesting. They said, oh, I'm from wife number two. I said, you're from what? And they were describing to me that um, some of their marriages, their grandparents had multiple wives. And they would tell me, I'm not from the first family, I'm from the second family, that's why it's harder for us. And, and, and to describe it to me, wife number two or maybe wife number three does not get the treatment that wife number one gets. 
And this is not something biblical times. This, this is happening right here in our Chinese congregation where there's tension and there's strife and there's brokenness in these families that some of these families can't talk to each other because of the way that the father treated wife number one, wife number two, and the children um, differentially. So it brings a lot of stress to this family. And as Scripture tells us here that he loved Joseph more than any of his other sons, the more pain, the more jealousy, the more brokenness that comes, it's, it's interesting that at some point, Jacob has to wake up to what he's done. And I referred just a little bit earlier to Abraham, you know, the son that he loved. And remember what God asked of Abraham at the pinnacle of his faith, probably the biggest test that Abraham has, to what he is considered righteous for, James. Remember studying James, he's considered righteous for doing what? For sacrificing Isaac, putting his son, your son, your only son, the son whom you love, up on the altar. And Abraham's able to do it. He's able to give back to God his most precious possession on earth. He puts Isaac up there. And in some ways, God's going to ask that of Jacob. You, you know how this story kind of plays out. Soon, Joseph will be ripped out of Jacob's hands. And whether Jacob wants to or not, he'll be forced back to give God any idols in his life, anything that he loves more than God. God loves Jacob so much that I will take away from you anything that you put in my place. If you put anything above me, if there's anything in your life that doesn't show that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, God may take that and often will take that if he loves you. And that will happen to Jacob soon as he puts this idolatry on, onto Joseph. Okay, we're going through this part. Now this part's very interesting. So now we talk about the dreams. We read about the dreams earlier. Let me read again. So Joseph here, Joseph said to them, hear this dream I have dreamed. Behold, we are binding sheaves in a field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Or you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. So we see Joseph being the favorite child. In some ways, being the spoiled child. And he may not choose his words very carefully. He says, hey, you guys, hear this dream that I dreamed. He's a little bit tactless, a little bit insensitive, maybe unaware of the impact of what he's going to say next. But... Well, he has some growing to do. But it's interesting that this first dream that he shares with him, the wheat and the sheaves, is a foretelling of what's going to happen. Now, these guys here are actually sheep herders. But God uses sheaves or, or wheat maybe to foretell what's going to happen. Soon, Joseph will save his brothers by storing the wheat. Soon, Joseph will save Egypt through wheat. And it, scripture tells us he basically saves the world by saving people with the wheat. So God may be foretelling us what's going to happen in Joseph's future. And we won't read it right here, but the second dream is very similar, where the sun and the moon and stars all bound down to Joseph as well. And what is the reaction to this? Now remember that these visions show God's providence. These are from the Lord. This is God's word. This is God telling them, this is what is going to happen. So God speaks to them through 
these dreams and how do they react? The brothers hate it. I can't stand that. Are you telling me that we're going to bow down to you, number 11? You are managing you, the guy that we hate. There is no way that we are bowing down to you. There's no way that we are going to do this. And when it comes to Jacob, Jacob's the same thing. Like Jacob, and if Rachel was still with us, do you think that we would bow down to you? We don't, we don't believe this. We don't accept this. This is not something that we would tolerate. This goes against the natural order of the world. This goes against my pride. You're younger than us. There's no way that I would ever do this for you. And what they really forget here is that it's not Joseph telling these things. These things all come from the Lord. And the Lord says, this is the way it's going to be. And this is very much us or the world saying, we don't like you, God. We don't like what you're telling us. This is not fair. I want it this way. This is the way it should be. And they question and they hate God's providence being shown here. So many of you follow um, Tim Keller. Tim Keller is so popular. Whenever he speaks, there's always people at the pulpit after, you know, asking questions. So this is one Sunday. I, I heard of this account where he was there, you know, preaching about the Lord. And afterwards, long line finally gets on this woman who was very angry with um, Tim Keller. He said, are you so arrogant to tell me that you're saying that your way is the only way, that all the Buddhists are wrong, that all the people that believe in Islam are wrong. Are you so arrogant to say that your way is the only way? Like everyone gets really quiet because everyone else is complimenting Tim. And, everyone's like, and, and this woman is like, she's yelling and, just like, and pointing a finger at him and he gets very quiet. And Tim answers in a way that's very interesting. He said, ma'am, I don't think your problem is with me. I think your problem is with Jesus Christ. I think your problem is that when he says, he, I am the way, the truth, and the life, you have a problem with Christ. And he is just a messenger. We're so mad at Tim. We're so mad at Joseph. We're so mad at the people. And we forget who they stand for. Tim steps out of the way. Joseph, step out of the way and say, this is God's plan. This is God's providence. This is God's way. And we don't have to make an apology for it. We're so, we're so worried about ourselves. Like, what are they going to think of me? What about me? And what, what's going to happen to me? And it's inconsequential because we're standing in the presence of the Lord. And if the Lord gave us the vision, if the Lord gave us the truth, if the Lord gave us his holiness, then we need to stand for it. We don't have a choice. But it is the, it's from the Lord and not from us. Okay, let's go on to 13. In Israel, so he's not called Jacob here. It's just interesting. In Israel, said to Joseph, are your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. So there's a lot of things being said here, but Israel is sending Joseph out to Shechem. Well, that sounds like a great place to go. Joseph, go back out to Shechem. What happened to Shechem? Well, his brothers murdered people. His brothers probably raped some of the wives, but they took them for slavery, took all their goods. Those people hate us out there. That's a terrible place to go. Those people wanted to basically destroy all of Jacob's clan. So Joseph, why don't you just go ahead back out right there? Go ahead by yourself right out to Shechem. And then secondly, not only to Shechem, go find your brothers, the brothers that love you and adore you. Now let's go to the brothers that hate you already, that are jealous of you, that have nothing good to say about, no, 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 nothing peaceable to say about Joseph. So his father's putting him in a very bad position. And he's like, well, how does Joseph respond to this? 
he said to them, here, oh, I'm sorry, here's some of the things that his brothers, you can look at what his brothers feel about him. They hate him, they can't speak peaceably about him, they hate him even more, they hate him even more, and his brothers were jealous of him. So when scripture says it once, it's pretty important. When scripture says it twice, three times, seldom do you see it four times, uh, they hate Joseph. I mean, there's no and if or bust. They cannot stand Joseph. And how does uh, Joseph respond to that? Okay, here I am, I'm ready to go, send me out. This is very different than Jonah. When Jonah gets sent to do something he doesn't like, he heads the other direction of Nineveh. But Joseph, and again, these seeds of fortitude are being planted in Joseph's heart. He says, you know what? I know what you're sending me. I know what happened here. I know what you're asking me to do. Here I am. I'm ready to go. There's a good attitude here. There's a good sense that he could be that hardworking, obedient, submissive young man modeled for us in Scripture. He's a favorite son. He said, Dad, maybe I don't want to go this time. He's a manager. He could send a servant. Send one of the servants out there. They, this is an errand call. And he could probably just knock on it all. I don't think his father would have punished him. His father loves him. His father doesn't want to punish his favorite son. He could have just disobeyed. But instead, he models for us a willing, obedient, submissive heart. I don't really want to do it. Send me. I'm going to go. Okay? We're getting toward the end here. Okay, so then he said to him, go now and see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock and bring me word. And he sent him from the valley of Hebron and he came to Shechem. And he found a man wandering in the fields and the man asked him, what are you seeking? I'm seeking my brothers, he said. And the man said, they have gone away for I heard them say, let's go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. So, a little distance here, we found out they're in Hebron. Uh, Jacob and Joseph are living in Hebron. He goes to Bethel. Bethel, you guys remember? It's where Jacob makes his promise. If you keep me safe, bring me back to this land, I will give you a tenth. So that's 20 miles. He's gone 20 miles. I don't know how far you guys can walk in a day. I'm going to say that's one day, maybe a day. He goes to Bethel. From Bethel to Shechem, another 20 miles. So another day. He goes two days out, Shechem. He goes pretty far, and you know what? He's fulfilled what his dad asked him to do. Go to Shechem, find your brothers, and he, and he did. He went to Shechem. He didn't find his brothers, but he, he did what he could have done. Two days worth of walking, a great distance in a very dangerous land, and he could just turn around and say, that's it. I followed my dad. I did what you asked me to do. But what you see here is not indolence, not passivity, but in obedience to follow his father's word even more. There's a diligence about him. I'm going to go a little bit further. It's another 10 miles to Dotham, but I'm going to go ahead and go. And so we see Joseph, again, having, I'm going to use the word fortitude, to do the task to its end, to follow through, to be faithful, to be obedient, to do the extra hour uh, effort to get where he wants to go. And that will be grown. Pastor Hans will bring that to us next week and the week after, how that continues to grow. But we see the beginnings of a young man, strong and courageous, having fortitude. Okay, this is our last part we're going to study today. And the man said, they have gone away, for I've heard them say, let's go to Dotham. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dotham. So from 18 to the end of the chapter, you guys know what happens to Joseph. It's a horrible story. 
what happens to Joseph. He's stripped of his jacket. He's bound and thrown into a pit. And they send him off to Egypt, right? So it's a terrible thing that happens to Joseph. It's just horrible what happens at Dothan. It's a terrible place. And you just think about all the scars and the emotions and the things that would come back every time that we think of Dotham or we think of what happened to Joseph at Dotham. But again, you guys that know your Bible as well know that something very interesting happens at Dotham. At Dotham, Elisha and his servant are running away from a king that wants to kill him. They think that Elisha has these like special powers that he can see whatever happens in his bedroom. Whatever you're doing, like Elisha can tell you. And so they have to hunt down Elisha because Elisha is like always thwarting them. And so as the armies surround Elisha and the servant is getting terrified that we have nowhere to go, maybe we should just give up. Maybe we should just kill ourselves. Maybe we just let them kill us. What are we going to do? Do you remember what happens at Dotham? This is the city that Elisha's hold up on. He said, Elisha prays to the Lord, and he says, Open his eyes, Lord, that he may see. And the Lord opened his servant's eyes, and he saw the hills full of horses, full of chariots, of fire all around Elisha. So the servant was terrified that we're surrounded by the earthly army. We're terrified that this army is going to destroy us. It's just, it's just my master and I. We're just like two little people. They're going to wipe us out. And Elisha's like, wait a minute. You have it backwards. The armies are surrounded by the Lord of hosts. We are in perfect position because we're in God's will. Whenever you're in God's will, you're the safest place ever. Whenever you're into God's providence, that is the best place to be. There's no better, safer place to be than following God, being obedient, being submissive to the Lord's will. And Elisha and his servant, his eyes are open like, oh, we're in a really good place. And eventually, when the armies see that, they disperse. The armies say, wow, we're the ones in trouble because we're going against the Lord our God Almighty. And Elisha and his servants are saved. So as we talk about providence here, the providence of God, we see a couple things here. One, we see the movement, the hatred, the jealousy, the envy, the murderous intent of the brothers, which is always around us. We don't have to look very far in our world to see that. That is all around us. But then secondly, we see the seeds of fortitude planted in Joseph's life and Joseph becoming the man to save the world. And you really want you to think about it for a minute because Joseph is going to go through great suffering. He's going to go through great malice, betrayal. He's going to go through all kinds of things right now. And, and as Pastor Hans are talking about, I was thinking, what does Joseph have left to hold on to? As every, as the robe is stripped away, his father is stripped away, as everything in his homeland is stripped away from him, what is Joseph left with? Certainly he would have heard the oral tradition of how God helped Abraham, how God helped Isaac, how God helped Jacob at Bethel. And those things were being planted in his mind. But the more I thought about it, the only thing that Joseph really had to hold on to, the only thing that he could really grasp were those two visions. The vision of the sheaves bowing down before him and the sun, moon, and stars bowing down before him. The dreams, God's word, God's providence in his life was the only thing he could hold on to. And for the next, speculation, 18 to 20, 28 years from now, he has those two things to hold on to. I'm going to hold on to God's word because God promised me 
that this is going to happen. God spoke to me that this will happen. And just like Abraham had to wait decades for the coming of Isaac, Joseph will have to wait decade after decade before those visions are fulfilled. But if you know God's providence, it's secret, it's unseen, but it's never not at work. And it always brings through to fruition. And I assure you today, those of you who are suffering, those of you who are broken, those who look and find that there's no hope around us, if you're in God's will, if you're obedient, if you're following where God is leading you, there's a work of providence working in your life, just as it was for Joseph, it'll be true for us today. Okay, let's close in a word of prayer. Uh, this is a story that we know very well, yet we find very relevant as we find the suffering and a brokenness and a dysfunction all around us. It's inside our own hearts, it's inside our families, it's inside this church. But Father, we know that also at work is your hand of providence, a hand that promises never to leave us, never to forsake us. This providence that brought Jacob to Joseph to be the father, the earthly father of Christ. We know that your hand continues to work through Christ to save us, to prosper us, to give us hope, to give us purpose in this world. And we have nothing else to hold on to. May you teach us to be men and women who cling to Christ, cling to the providence that you've shown through um, generation after generation. Thank you, Father, of the love that you show through the person of Christ. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Okay.